So I don't know if you're anything like me, but uh, my mind never stops. So one of the things I wonder very often is, what would Jesus do, and not like the bracelet, but what would Jesus actually do if he was on the earth today? If Jesus was walking around, what would he do? What would he say? Have you ever wondered that? Then it gets a little scarier. What would he do if he walked into my home? What would he do if he caught me when I wasn't ready for him? What would he do when he walked into our church? Would he be pleased in what he saw? Would he join in in the worship or would he find frustration in our hypocrisy? What would he do if he walked into many churches today? Big, grand buildings with edifices made to architecture and pomp and show, and they put on a great production, but would he be pleased? Or the little churches that seem humble and faithful, but is there any, really, any life at all? Are they not growing because there is no fruit? Jonathan, you're going to have to grab those pages later. The fan's just blowing them everywhere. Sorry. Um, and so I think about that. So I think about who is really bearing fruit, and who is offering acceptable worship. Now, some churches appear lively, but if you are lively, does that mean that you have life? And some churches appear pretty and put together, but does that mean that you are faithful? That's what we're going to look at this morning. And we are often tempted to point point fingers and try to make assessments on whether other churches are faithful or not. And some are probably obvious. Some are not being faithful. Many are not being faithful. But some might be harder to tell. And we, we might be too quick to jump down other churches' throats who don't look exactly like we do or our picture. Or you may be sitting there right now thinking of all the ways that this church doesn't look the way you think it should. But praise God that Jesus is more gracious toward his own than we are. And praise God that he is long-suffering toward a people who is not faithful to him. But if you are unfaithful, if you are not bearing fruit, if you are not a church that has life, that is a whole different story. And that's what we're going to look to this morning. How does Jesus respond to the fraudulent and the unfaithful churches? And we'll see that by how he did respond to those unfaithful, hypocritical gatherings in God's name, but not to God's glory. So this morning, we're going to look at the text, look at some of the cultural situations and details. We're going to dig into, pretty straightforward, the tree and the temple. Uh, And then we're going to spend some time on the symbolism of the tree and the temple, how they fit together, and the application for us. So let's jump right in. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 11. Oh, you're going to need your Bibles this morning. There are lots of parallels, and they, uh, most of them will not be on the screen. But I want you to get in the habit. I want you to see what's in the other Gospels and uh, in the prophets looking forward to this text. So Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went out to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, it is not, or excuse me, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowds were astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before your word this morning, 
Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to see your word rightly. That there is no reference, there is no analogy, there is no metaphor that is errantly placed. You orchestrated through your spirit the penning of your word. That Mark may write down the words as you would have, them, you would have us read them. And the way that we need to hear them. And that in the same way that your Spirit inspired the Word, that your Spirit would teach us and guide us in your Word. That we will see the glory of your plan of redemption. Your mercy and grace towards sinners. But your righteous anger. And your legitimate wrath toward the sinful who hate you and live against you. May we see the Scriptures rightly and may we see you rightly. May we run to Jesus Christ. May we run to the true temple, to the final sacrifice. May our worship be honoring and glorifying to Him who came to fulfill all the law and the prophets and the writings. That our Father in Heaven might be glorified. And we may be filled with Your Spirit as we go out of this room to be confident in who we are, what You have done for us, and what You call us to do as faithful worshipers and ministers of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And as in His name we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's jump in as we talked about Jesus was staying in Bethany. It was a little outside of Jerusalem, a couple miles to the east. He'd walk past the Mount of Olives, making his way into the city in the time of Passover. Jesus, as was custom, would wake up early in the morning, and he's human. So the first thing we see here is on the, day, on the following day when they were coming from Bethany, he was hungry. Simple statement, but Mark is very intentional to bring in references to who Jesus is fully. He's really a man. He's really hungry, but he's, he's really God. He's, he's truly divine as well. And so this is a very human thing. I'm hungry, and I don't know if you guys have ever been like me, where like you have something on your mind. Like Jesus right now is probably thinking a fig and some crusty bread would be great, like, some, like a fig spread on, on, some, on some bread. Like if you ever get that thing in your mind, like, oh, I, I'm in, I can't wait to have this, and then it's sold out, or it's... It's, it's, it's gone. There's, there, there's none of it. Like you get, you get hangry because uh, what you were looking forward to is not there. This is just me imposing that on Jesus, but I think that's what's going on here. But he's hungry. And figs are good, and he sees at the distance a fig tree. And it's in leaf, and when he Went to see if he could find anything in it. When he came to it, it had found nothing but leaves. I want to spend a few moments here on the fig tree. There's a lot to learn here. Um, The fig tree itself is a parabolic tree, meaning its whole maturation process is like a parable in the way that uh, it comes into season and when it is in season and and why uh, Jesus comes to it now and why he responds the way he does is very telling. So, a couple things. If you look throughout the Scriptures... Uh, fig trees are very important in the ancient Near East. One, they are known for shade. So they have these big, broad leaves, and you can sit under them. Uh, and we, we see that early on in, in John's Gospel. Um, but they also have this, this sweet, decadent fruit when it is ripe. And uh, figs have a lot of symbolism within Scripture. The earliest reference we see to figs is in the garden. Figs were the plant that covered sin and shame. And so they are associated with the fall from the very first moments of the fall. And so that's important for us to get. If we read in Scripture, when the figs are ripe, everything's good. When the figs are ripe, it means abundance. It means blessing. It means comfort. You can just lay down every man under his own fig tree. He can eat and he can have, he can have rest from the sun. That's a good thing. But often in Scripture, more often... Figs are a reference to when things are not good. If the fruit is unripe, it is a sign of judgment. If there is no fruit, it is a sign of judgment and condemnation. 
So this is a, a very common tree, and we can tend to read over these things because um, a couple of you in the congregation grow fig trees, but I, we don't see them everywhere. It's not very common. And especially where Jesus is, it, it's common. I, I mentioned this briefly last week, but he came to Bethany and Bethphage. So Beth in Hebrew's house, essentially. And so Bethphage, or there's a Hebrew word, uh, pajim, which is there's a little bulb that grows on a fig tree in the fall. So after the, the, the harvest is done, they grow this bulb. It looks like a fruit. It's edible, but there's really no flavor to it. And it's on the tree all winter long. For about six months, it's on the tree. So Bethphage is house of unripe figs. House of fig, pajim. And that's what they're, they're known for, these little pseudo-fruits that are there half the year. And so these are on there all throughout wintertime. About March or April, the green leaves grow. And so these fig trees around the time of Passover, April, would, would be in full foliage. These bright green, big leaves, it looks like a fruitful tree. On the outside, it is majestic. It is, it is beautiful. It, it should be good for shade, and it should be good for fruit. It should be good for eating. And so typically, they'll have these little fruit on there, which some people will eat, but it's not your favorite, because these trees are not ripe and ready to eat until May or June. So you've got another month or two to go. So here we are in April. We're in the, the city of unripe fruit. And so, in this way, these trees are very deceptive. They seem like they are good to eat. All the, 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 they're green. They've got these little fruits on them. And they, and they have all this outward show, but really there is no real fruit. This tree is even worse. This tree should have at least signs of upcoming fruit, but it's only leaves. This tree is pretty, but empty. Like a lot of people pretty but empty. And it's not the season for the fruit, literally, but also symbolically. We'll get to that later. So kind of put your mind there. So that's why this, this fig tree is important. And so there's a few more things I want to pull out of this. So Jesus comes to this fig tree. He only sees leaves. There's nothing on it. It's not the season. And he says to it, may no one ever, ever eat fruit from you again. This is really strong language this is the only miracle in all the Gospels that is a miracle of destruction. And it is the last miracle that Jesus performs before the resurrection. So we should probably pay attention here. This is unique to all other miracles. And as you're reading this, if you're reading this for the first time, or if you're reading this and find yourself rooting for the tree, you're like, this seems harsh. Why is Jesus saying this? But this is a reality, and this is consistent in Jesus' teaching, and this is consistent in that culture. So the first um, text I want you to look at is Matthew chapter 7. Because if you are someone who cultivates and you farm trees, and one does not produce fruit, you're wasting your time and you're wasting your ground. And I want you to see what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. I'm not going to get through the the whole example of the, the tree and, and the fruit, but look at verse 17. Matthew seven seventeen. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor even a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. This is a common practice. In agriculture, if the tree does not bear good fruit, there may be a disease. You don't want it to spread to other trees, and you don't want to waste your time on something that's not bearing fruit. If a tree that is created to bear fruit does not bear, bear fruit, what good is it? It has no purpose. So cut it down and throw it into the fire. This is consistent in Jesus' teaching. But this is also an enacted parable. It's one of the few we have in the Gospels. Jesus doesn't just tell them a parable. He shows them a parable. And so this is very similar to a parable that he tells in Luke 13. So Matthew, Mark, turn to Luke 13. Look how Jesus describes the fig tree in Luke 13. I want to pick up on a few of the, the, the symbolism here. Luke 13, verse 6. 
And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit from the fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. This is ripe with symbolism. How long was Jesus in ministry? Anyone know? Three years. This is in the last year of Jesus' ministry. The garden that He was sent to, His Father's vineyard, is not bearing fruit. For three years, he's seen, he has not seen fruit in the Jews as he should have. And what was the practice? Why should it use up the ground? This is taking up perfectly valuable soil for a tree that would bear fruit. Cut it down. It should be cut down. But there is a plea from the worker. Give it another year. Symbolic for give it more time. Put manure on it. Fertilize it. Let's see if it grows. It deserves to be destroyed and cut down. But we're going to hold out hope that it will bear fruit and we're not going to cut it down right now. Sound familiar? So this is very consistent with Jesus' teaching. Because even worse than finding a tree with no fruit on it is finding the people that you came for. Your own people who are fruitless, who are hypocrites, who are false worshipers, who are pretty on the outside but empty on the inside. And like Adam and Eve, as we see in Genesis, this tree is covering its sin and shame, even though it's pretty on the outside. It has nothing to show for it. It is worthless for its purpose. This is very similar to the temple that we're going to look at in a moment. It is beautiful on the outside, and I'm not going to get into the immensity of the temple. We'll spend more time on that in chapter 13. But Herod's temple was incredible. It's this big, beautiful temple. He took everything that Solomon built and just supersized it. So much so the disciples look at it and look at, look at this structure. Look how beautiful it is. But it's empty inside and it's fruitless like this tree. So when we get to the symbolism, I'm going to connect the tree and the temple. But before we get into the temple, I want us to think, how often are we like that tree? How often are we more concerned with how pretty we are on the outside? How put together we are, how pretty everyone thinks we are, but we pay little attention to actually bearing fruit. How often... Are we so consumed with the exterior that we are distracted from bearing fruit? Distracted from giving God glory? Bearing real fruit? Do we forget that the Lord sees past our fig leaves? We're still doing the same thing Adam and Eve did. We're still trying to cover ourselves with fig trees, trying to cover up our our shame as if God can't see through it. Trying to make ourselves presentable for other people or even presentable for God with little concern to the inside. And in this way, this tree is is Israel. But it is us. This is our tendency, is to be like this, this fruitless tree. And so, let's learn from this example. That it is not our external adornment that makes us beautiful in the eyes of God. It is not our foliage. It is our fruit. Jesus says, by their fruits, you shall know them. Let's keep reading. Getting into verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem. So walking by the tree, probably in Beth, Bethage, and, and he entered the temple. So I want to read this, and then I want to set the scene for you. We need to understand what's going on here. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. All right, let's back up a little bit. So the temple, I mentioned last week, but the temple is going to be central to Jesus' activities for the next three chapters. Chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13 are 
centered in Jesus' ministry in the temple. And as we talked about last week, they're coming to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. Jews from the dispersion, from the diaspora, all nations coming in. A city of 2,000, 200,000, excuse me, goes to a city of 2 million. And it's hustling and bustling, and there's a lot going on right now in this city. Everyone's gathered for the festival, and it's customary for everyone to go into the city. There are, there are different readings, there are liturgies, there is, there is singing, there is worship, there is sacrifices. There's a lot going on in a faithful festival. But this is going to be a little bit different. So what we saw earlier in Mark's Gospel is that Jesus confronts the false teachings in the synagogues. These are the, the local social gatherings. But now he's going to confront them in the temple. The larger corporate gatherings where all of Israel comes together, not just Israel in the neighborhood. And this theme of the, the temple and its imagery and its significance will continue to play a major role through the rest of the book as, as well. So, I want to set up the, the, the temple. Pay attention as you see Jesus' interaction in the temple over the next couple weeks. Now I want to talk about the temple. So this, this temple built by Herod uh, was, it began before the birth of Christ, about 20 years before. It took about 60 years to, to get fully built, more, more or less. It was massive. 35 acres was the, the full temple mount. And it could hold 75,000 people at one time. So people were coming in and out from sunup to sundown six days a week for the uh, six days in this, in this festival. 75,000 at a time. And so there will be a couple pictures up on, up on the screen. I want you to get an idea of it. So Herod's temple. So you've got the uh, temple in the middle, which is roughly the size of what Solomon built. The, all the temple specifications were the same. But the uh, courtyard got, got bigger. The grounds got, got bigger. And so the Gentile courtyard, this is where most of the interaction would have happened. So you've got these successive courts. So the Gentile courtyard is the largest. It's about two football fields. And so this is the only acceptable place for uncircumcised Gentiles or unclean Jews. They could not go any further. And if you look at the, the, the front of the temple, there was the gate of the women. So if you were a clean man or woman who was a Jew, you could continue further in there. And then even... and then. Um, only men could go in the inner courtyard where they would actually hand the sacrifices over to the priest. So think about this, the, the outside area, the, uh, and go on to the, to the next picture. So this is a, a model in Israel, uh, the, the, the best they can to, to scale, to kind of give you a, a better picture. And then go to the, the next picture. Uh, this is one of the better diagrams from uh, a, a commentary that I have. So you get an idea. You got the court up top, the, the, the uh, excuse me, the temple up top, the women's court, and then the, the court of the Gentiles. So this is where all of the, the interchange would, would have happened. This is where the animals are. This is where the, uh, the money is. It's a pretty big area, but there's a, the uh, bold black line around there was a waist-high barrier between the court of the Gentiles and the, the temple courts themselves. And in Hebrew, in Aramaic, and in Latin, it says, no foreigner shall enter here. Any foreigner who enters here takes his life into his own hands in and is deserving of death. So Gentiles must stay on the outside. That's the only place where they could worship. And that is where most of the, uh, the, the interactions would, would have happened. So kind of how you get the, so, so you have the idea of what's going on here. And you, you can keep this up for a few minutes, it's fine. So here's what was happening. Three times a year, all of the males of Israel were required to go and give sacrifices. And uh, the sacrifice for, for sin offerings was a lamb. And Josephus is a helpful historian to give us a, a picture. He said on a festival year, when Passover was in its full function, 255,000 lambs were slaughtered and sacrificed. That's a lot of lambs. That's a lot of sin, as it should be. But not everyone had lambs. And so there were sheep and um, goats, you know, for different offerings. And if you were really poor and you didn't have a lamb for your sin offerings, you could give two pigeons. This is why the pigeons are mentioned here. Because this is not just extorting the 
needs of the people coming to worship. This is extorting the poor. Because those who were selling pigeons were selling them at a great profit. So what we're seeing here is we're seeing procrastination and we're seeing inflation. So you were required to bring your own lamb, to bring it into the city and to make sure that it was spotless. These are Jews who've gotten used to the comfort of of making the, the journey without their sacrifice. I mean, think about it. If you know you had to give an offering for your sin, and you're carrying this little lamb on the entire journey to Jerusalem, you're reminded the entire way, I'm a sinner, and this lamb is going to shed its blood to cover my sins. But they would take the shortcut. And of course, if you're an entrepreneurial businessman, you think, well, these people are here. I've got, them. I've got this captive audience, so I'm going to jack up the prices on all of the sacrifices. So it wasn't just the sacrifices. The dispersed Jews went to all the nations, and so they had different coins. Every nation had its own money, and just like we have now, you, you go and change in currency. You had currency changers, but they got to get their cut too. So every step of the way, the Jews were getting extorted. They were procrastinating, and so if you procrastinate, you will get taken advantage of, but you were not supposed to exact usury or taking advantage of your, your brothers and exacting interest against fellow Israelites. So that's why Jesus drove out those who sold, those who inflate the prices, and those who bought, those who procrastinated and did not come prepared for their, their offerings. So everyone was in the wrong here. And so you can see how this large gathering, maybe up to 75,000 people in one area, just think about this for a moment. Think about the sights, the sounds, and the smells. This is supposed to be where we come to worship, and people are bartering. Animals are making noises. They are using the ground as their own personal bathroom. Imagine the smell. The chaos, any those those movies that you see of the, the ancient bazaars where, where people are, are buying and selling and all this is moving around, this is what Jesus walks into. This procrastination and this inflation. And now you can see why there's a frustration building. I mean, we know what this is like. Anyone who has ever been to a live sporting event or a theme park knows that when they've got you there, they've, they've got you. And I want to turn over the tables there for many reasons. But when I see a $15 pretzel, I just want to toss everything over. That's why I don't go. But it should not be like this in the house of God. Sadly, that was the practice then, and it's the practice now in many churches who men are getting rich off of people, bringing them in there and pulling on, on, their, on their heartstrings. They've, they've got them where they, where they want them and exacting too much from them and getting rich in the process. And so Jesus is rightfully angry because this is not a theme park or a ballpark. This is a house of prayer. This is a place of worship. So he drives them out. And in his driving them out, he shows his authority and his anger. Authority, because he rightfully can criticize their false worship. He rightfully can judge them and defend and guard the house of God. John in chapter 2 tells of the disciples remembering his zeal for the house of the Lord. He is zealous for the things of God. He is zealous that God would be worshipped rightly that his Father in heaven would be glorified as he desired him to be glorified in every moment of his ministry. Jesus is right to come in and show his authority over the false practices. But he's also right in his anger. This is righteous anger, and we've talked about this before, but it's good to remember. Too often in our selfishness, we think we have righteous anger. Let me tell you the difference. Sinful anger says, look what they've done to me. Sinful anger wants ourselves to be vindicated. Righteous anger says, look what they've done to my God. They want the, the, the name of God to be vindicated. They want God to be worshipped rightly. They want God to be seen in reverence and awe as He should be. And Jesus is right to be angry. Many Christians falsely say we should never be angry. 
No, the psalmist says, be angry, but do not sin. There is a time to be angry, and it is right to be angry when God's word and God's people are being distorted. But don't switch that with your own selfish anger, where you want to be vindicated or you take up some other cause that you put on par with worship of God. You should not get as angry at politics as you do with false worship. And I can go on and on down the line. It's just one example. But Jesus is rightly angry here. So picture this scene. He's driving them all out. He is turning over the tables. In verse 16, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So that's why this picture is still up there. You've got these, this large courtyard. You've got these small entrances where you can go from the court of the Gentiles into the temple courts proper. And then one main entrance into the, the woman's court. So Jesus is literally defending the narrow way. He is standing in these gates. And he is not allowing them to bring, this word for anything is vessels or containers of merchandise. These are vendors who are bringing their, their wares in and out. And Jesus is standing in the gate and defending, you will not go through here. You will no longer make this house of worship a den of robbers. He is making a very bold statement. They must go through him if they are going to continue this cult of materialism that has come up in God's temple. So this is often called the cleansing of the temple. It's a fair description, but I don't think it's the most accurate. It does need to be cleansed. But if it was cleansed, it could offer acceptable worship. And it, and it will be cleansed when the final sacrifice is offered. But right now, it is a clearing. It is a, re, it is a removing. It is a condemnation of false practices. This temple, when the final sacrifice is offered, as we've seen in Hebrews, it will become obsolete, as the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 8. Because its mission will be fulfilled. The final sacrifice will be offered and God's dwelling place of the Holy of Holies will be with man when the Spirit is sent. And so all this brings its, its, its fulfillment. So it's not, it's not truly being cleansed because it's still wicked after Jesus leaves. But He is clearing it out and, and this is another enacted parable. He is showing them the wickedness of the temple by His actions. And He's not just doing it by His actions. He's following it up with His words. Look at verse 17. And he was teaching them. This in the Greek, it's continuous action in the past. As, think about this. As he's turning over tables, as he's, as he's uh, moving people off, he's teaching them. He's quoting scripture while he's disrupting their business. Gives you an idea of what kind of teacher Jesus is. So I want to spend a little time on that. Because if... Mark gives us insight into Jesus' exposition, how he opens up Scripture. We should probably pay attention. So Jesus is quoting the Old Testament while he's flipping over tables and while he's driving out all these people. Who's going to argue with him? Who's going who's to come against him when he's, when he's quoting Scripture? And I want you to look at these two terms before we look at these two passages. A house and a den. House is where a family lives. A house is welcoming. A house is safe. A house is loving. A house is conducive to unity in prayer and worship. A den is where thieves and robbers hang out. If you have not been to the Middle East, there are, there are many caves in the mountains. And when these raiders would come into town and they would rob, they would, they would go and they would hide up in the caves and hide up in, in the mountains and they would store all of their, their, their goods. Archaeologists have uncovered many of these, these dens and caves that are that are full of all kinds of valuables that these thieves hide out in. So Jesus is contrasting, this is supposed to be a house, but you've made it a den. And so we've got two passages to look at. Number one, Isaiah 56. So turn to Isaiah, it's the first major prophet. So you go to the middle of your Bible, you'll find Psalms, you look at some other wisdom books, and then you'll get to Isaiah. So Isaiah 56. I want to read this entire section because I think it's helpful. This is God's design 
for foreigners. And remember, this is happening in the court of the Gentiles. This is the only place for acceptable worship for the Gentiles. This is God's promise to the Gentiles in Isaiah 56. So you've got to remember, when Jesus quotes a verse, he is assuming his Jewish audience knows the entire context. He doesn't have to quote all eight verses because he knows that they should know it. We're going to see who he's speaking to in just a moment, but I want us to get the context. Isaiah 56, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. This is a great promise, obviously fulfilled in Christ. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath. When you see the Sabbath in the, prov- in the prophets, it is literal for the, the seventh day of rest, but it is encompassing for worship. When you keep the Sabbath, when you know that God has set up a plan for worship, the Sabbath kind of covers the others. You've got a Sabbath day in the week. You've got Sabbath weeks throughout the year. So for those who keep my worship, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing evil, it's not just on one day, it's all throughout the year. Now here's where we come in, and here's where the symbolism comes in for the Gentiles. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord, say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. There's a promise of fulfillment for the Gentiles. And let not the eunuch say, this is even worse. This is someone who castrates themselves in service of a false god, a, a, a temple servant. This eunuch, behold, I am a dry tree, all puns intended here. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house, God's house, the temple, and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. Even the worst out there, even someone who dedicates themselves to an idol, if you join yourself to me, I will give you a greater name than those who are born in Israel who think of themselves as sons and daughters, and you hold fast to my covenant. Verse 6, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord. What is acceptable worship? Being joined to God, ministering to Him, to love His name and to serve Him. What does acceptable worship look like? Verse 6. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain, Mount Zion, the Temple Mount, Jerusalem, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. You think with all the craziness going on that Jesus walked into, that's conducive to joyful in prayer? Of course not. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my offer. They were altar. They were to come freely before the Lord. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. This is what Jesus is quoting. This is what Jesus has in mind. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel. There's a promise to the sons of Israel. I have not given up on Israel. Declares I will gather yet others to him beside these already gathered. There's promises to Israel. There's promises to those outside. And it is all for praise and worship of him and a house of prayer. This is what he has in mind. This is what you should be doing. But it's not what you're doing. Jeremiah 7 is what you are doing. So, turn to Jeremiah, the next book to your right, second major prophet. There are many passages I, I, could, I could look at, but Jesus quotes these two, so I'm going to limit myself, myself to these two, and I want to look at them in context. So, Jeremiah 1 through 6, we're talking about the wickedness of Israel. We're talking about Jerusalem's unfaithfulness, and God is... is pronouncing judgment upon them but look at the language of chapter 7 the lord introduces all this verse 1 and 2 and the word that came to jeremiah from the lord stand in the gate of the lord's house what is jesus doing he is standing not letting them come in jeremiah as a prophet who has a very uh tactile ministry jeremiah is is called to do a lot of things with his, with his body. And so he is called to stand here in this gate and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who entered these gates to worship the Lord. Jesus is quoting Jeremiah 7 in the concepts of the context of those coming to the temple to worship. Anybody with me so far? Hope so. 
I want to pick up again in verse 8. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered. And say, Hosanna, God is my salvation. Save me, O God. Think about that. God is condemning them in the days of Jeremiah for doing the same exact thing they are doing now only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. This is what Jesus has in mind. This is what Jesus is quoting. He is not taking it out of context. He assumes the full context. And it gets worse. Because he goes on to say, I'm going to destroy and cast you out in verses 12 through 15. And in verses 16 and following, those who are disobedient, I will destroy. This is not just a slap on the wrist. This is destruction to those who are unfaithful, who turn this beautiful house of prayer into a terrible den of robbers. I would have loved to hear all of what Jesus is teaching, but that's all that Mark gives us. But that's enough. Now, Particular ears are tickled or tingle when they hear this. Some people know that they're being talked about. Look back in Mark. Verse 18, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy them, for they feared him. Now why bring in the chief priests and the scribes here? So you have to know the kind of Jewish underworld of the day. Who should be defending the temple? Who should be overseeing right worship? The chief priests. They were the ones responsible. But guess who gets a cut of everything that was going on in the temple? Also the chief priests. They're like the mafia. Everybody had to kick up to the next guy. You think that, that someone could be in there selling lambs and overcharging for doves and exchanging coins without them knowing about it, without them approving of it? The chief priests and the Sadducees were the, the main components, or, or uh, the chief priests and the scribes, were the main components of the Sanhedrin, run by the Sadducees. They're both Sadducees. So these powerful and influential men whose pockets are getting lined by this whole thing are now frustrated because they realize that you that Jesus is referring to is them. They bear responsibility because they are the guards and the keepers of God's temple. You have made it. We'll look at this in a couple weeks, but that's why they want to destroy him and they confront him at the end of chapter 11. Notice, they fear him. This is not a fear in awe and reverence. This is a cowardly fear. This is not a fear of the Lord, but they fear him because they fear the people more. Their motivation is for selfish gain. They are greedy cowards. The complete opposite of Jesus. Whose zeal is for the house of the Lord. His zeal is for worship and, and, and holiness. He holds his conviction over peer pressure. Their motivations are selfish in every, in every regard. For their own pockets and their own position. Jesus doesn't care what anybody thinks except his Father in heaven. Luke adds that he was teaching daily and that he was healing in Matthew so you can see how the, the tension is going to build. He is in direct condemnation or confrontation in condemnation of their, their, their whole system that they're profiting off of. And so we'll get into them more. So we come to our last verse here. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And this kind of reads as when, when evenings came. So Jesus' daily pattern of going in, teaching, healing, overturning, confronting, and then leaving the city. But there's a, as we said last week, there's a literal and a symbolic here. This city that Jesus wept over because of its wickedness, He is now departing from. And He will soon depart from again. So two more temple texts I want to look at very briefly. 
Turn to the next page. We'll get here in a couple weeks, but Mark chapter 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now that would have sounded crazy to the disciples. And it would happen in their lifetime. But I think John's text is helpful here. So if you turn to John chapter 2. So there's debates among scholars because John puts a a clearing of the temple in chapter 2. And they say, well, one of them has the order out. But I think there are certainly two clearing of the temples. You think Jesus went in for Passover, saw this, and was happy with it the first time, but is now frustrated in the third year? So this is early on in Jesus' ministry. But look at the details that John includes. It helps bring all this together. And I love John because he does theological commentary along the way. He tells us what's happening in the hearts and minds of Jesus' disciples and also Jesus' intentions. John 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. And making a whip out of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered what was written. Psalm 69, the zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Uh, silly Jews. What sign do you show us? I'm flipping over tables. What else do you want? Jesus answered them, this is the sign. Destroy this temple and in three days I will rise, excuse me, in three days I will rise it up. This temple, he thought they were, they thought he was assuming or speaking about the temple they were standing in. But John pulls back the curtain a little bit. All puns intended. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. We'll get into that more later. And you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus has spoken. All of this is to point us to the fulfillment of the scriptures. To remember the words of Jesus. The point is not this physical temple. He is the true temple. And so now is where I want to get into the symbolism in our last couple minutes. Uh, The tree and the temple symbolism. So as we've seen, the the fruitless tree sets up the fruitless temple. This is another one of what commentators like to call a Markin sandwich. Because Mark gives you the, the beginning of the story the connection in the middle, and then the conclusion. So next week we'll look at when the, G, when the Jews, uh, his disciples, come upon this withered tree. This is very sobering when you think about this tree and this temple. They have great promise, but no performance. And they have great pretension with no payoff. And so it's natural for us to ask, what is God doing with Israel? Didn't Jesus come for the lost sheep of Israel? They're lifeless like this tree. Their their temple worship is useless. Do they have any hope? And then what about the Gentiles? Here's where the tree and the temple come together. So earlier I told you to put a mental note on it is not the season. It was literally not the season for figs. But of course there's a symbolic season as well for the Jews. Turn to Romans chapter 11. And I'm going to go through the whole chapter. I'm going to try to do it quickly. Um, but it's helpful getting the entire context because this is something near and dear to Paul's heart. Paul's heart goes out to his kinsmen and he explains, I love my kinsmen. I wish they'd all be saved. I'd give myself for them. But God's doing something amazing because Paul anticipates the questions every one of us wants to ask. Look at Romans 11 verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. He has not rejected the elect. He told us in chapter 9 that not all who descend from Israel are a true Israel. Look at verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. We learn this in our Hebrew study. 
Paul's getting at God's got a plan for his people, for true Israel. But he's also hardening the wicked for his purposes. Why is he doing that? Verse 11, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Is this God's end just to destroy them for no reason? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. In God's plan of redemption, he comes to the Jew first. They reject him. He brings in the Gentile to draw the Jew back in. Verse 12, now if the trespass means riches for the world, the Gentiles, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Skip down to verse 17. Now we get this tree analogy. We're transitioning from the fig, who is a deceitful tree, to an olive, who is always good, always fruitful. Every time you see an olive in Scripture, it's a good thing. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishment, nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Our response to this, we don't deserve to be a part of that family tree, but we are grafted in. So we should not be arrogant. We should not look down our noses at the Jews. We should thank God that he opened up a way for those outside of the tribes of Israel. Amen. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. Let's not make the same mistakes they did. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. This is a key verse here, 22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those have fallen. Destroy the fig tree. May you never bear fruit again. May no one ever eat of you. He is severe. His, his justice and His wrath is right and it is true. But His kindness to you, provided you continue We should rest in this. God's grace is amazing. Because we deserve to be like that withered tree because we are that withered tree apart from God's grace. But He is kind toward us. But, making sure we're not arrogant, picking up again in verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. It is not the season. When is the season? until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel, all true Israel, will be saved as it is written. Look at how we know the salvation of Israel. The deliverer will come from Zion, Jerusalem. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. He will clear the wickedness from the people of Israel. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is God's plan of redemption come together for the Jew and the Gentile. And this is a beautiful picture because one of the common promises in the old testament for the people of israel the day of their abundance is every man under his own tree every under his own fig tree every man under his own vine that is the promise but it is not now but the promise still stands god has not get given up on his people that tree that did not bear fruit for three years it is still being manured it is still being watered it is still being cultivated now let's put this together with the temple the pruning and the breaking off coincides with the temple system. Now, the Jews like to read the Old Testament passages that said that God will remove the Gentiles, the uncircumcised at heart, from the temple. But it is in fact the Jews who were defiling worship. It wasn't the Gentiles who were the problem, it was the Jews. And the irony is that He will clear the temple in Jerusalem. And He will offer a sacrifice so that Gentiles can worship through the temple of his body that the Jews put to death. This is where the gospel comes in. Because they were looking for salvation in an earthly temple. They were looking for salvation in their, their heritage, in their works. But it was the temple of Jesus Christ. It was the final sacrifice offered for, for sins that gave true worship. Those who worship him in spirit and truth will do so for eternity. And the hardening of their hearts led to our inclusion. God's plan of redemption to the Jew first, 
and also to the Greek, the power of God unto salvation. So do not take for granted what you have. Do not become arrogant in what you have. But remember that He put others to death for you. He ransomed others, as He says in Isaiah 43, for you because He loves you. This is amazing. And so what do we do with this? Three things, and we will close. Our identity, and these are going to be up on the, uh, the uh, screen. For us, 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? So, the old temple has been destroyed, but through Christ, He has made each one of us a place where acceptable worship can be offered. Why? Because the Holy of Holies has come upon His people. And He has given His Spirit to dwell within them. You are not your own. How does this happen? Next slide. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. The gospel has made us temples, acceptable worship, so we must glorify Him. This is our identity. 1 Peter 2. We're going to go quickly through these. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves are like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, temple, to be a holy priesthood. The chief priests were not doing what they were supposed to be doing, but we are a, are a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus' main concern was worship. He was so concerned with true worship that He sent His Spirit that we might worship Him rightly. Look at Ephesians 2, drawing together our Hebrew study. So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You foreigners, you have been brought in. This household is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This is our identity. There is no more need for a temple because Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. We are living stones built into Him, the temple. So what do we do until we await His return? Purity. Look at 2 Corinthians 6. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. This is true for marriage, absolutely. But it is true in other areas of life. Do you think that you can have things in common with the world? you think you can be in business with the world? you think you can be equal with the world? For what partnership, any kind of partnership, has the righteous with the lawless? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Too many of you are trying to have fellowship with the world. Too many are putting yourselves on equal playing field and playing by the world's rules and wondering why it's blowing up in your face. What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Verse 16, here's where it comes together. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are to see ourselves as temples, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Keep going. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. Doesn't mean that you cannot have people in the world that you love and care for and share the gospel with. It does not mean that we, are, we go off into the mountains and, and become monks. But it does mean that we are holy, as God's people always have should, should have been holy. Set apart, not doing the things that the world does, not loving the things that the, the, the world loves, not seeing ourselves exactly like the world. Then I will come to you and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now we're getting to, to chapter 7. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. This is worship language. Before you'd go into the temple, you would cleanse yourself from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. This is our call to purity until Christ returns. But when Christ returns, we're going to see this temple symbolism come to its final crescendo in Revelation 21-22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. This is the fullness of all of this. When we see Jesus one day, this identity as living stones, as temples of the Holy Spirit will find their fulfillment. Our God will dwell with His people, and we as His people will dwell with our God. 
I want to leave you with this summary from William Hendrickson, one of my favorite commentators on this book, and I think he summarizes this better than I would, and then I'll close this in prayer. In cursing the fig tree and in cleansing the temple, Jesus performed two symbolic acts with one meaning. He was predicting the downfall of unfruitful Israel. Not that he was through with the Jews, but that in the place of Israel, an international and everlasting kingdom would be established. A nation bringing forth not just leaves, but fruits, and gathered from both Jews and Gentiles. Amen. So meditate on this passage what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be grafted in. Look at yourself. Are you an unfruitful tree? Take some time to bring your hearts and minds before the Lord before we approach the table.